Hi, I'm Marshall Weber with Jan Descartes, and this is Brooklyn Calling. Welcome to our show, where we talk about artists, libraries, and social justice. Jan and I are both artists who work at Brooklyn, Inc., an arts nonprofit located in Brooklyn, New York, on the unceded land of the Muncie Lenape people. We created Brooklyn Calling to amplify voices in the artist book field and to explore art making as a tool for community engagement and social change. Today, our guest is Josh McPhee, and I'm going to let Jan take us away with his bio. Thanks, Marshall. Josh McPhee is a social movement cultural worker. He is a founding member of both the Just Seeds Artists Cooperative and Interference Archive, a public collection of cultural materials produced by social movements based in Brooklyn, New York. He has been producing agitproc for campaigns to close Rikers Island since 2016 and has been working with Brooklyn for about 10 years. Josh McPhee is the author and editor of numerous publications, including Signs of Change, Social Movement Cultures, 1960s to Now, and Signal, a journal of international political graphics and culture. He has organized the Celebrate People's History poster series since 1998 and has been designing book covers for many publishers for the past decade. His recent book is an encyclopedia of political record labels coming from Common Notions in 2019, a compendium of information about political music and radical cultural production. We'll Keep the Red Flag Flying Here is an extension of that book and is a hand-cut homage to the song The Red Flag, originally written by Irish organizer Jim Connell during the London Dock Strike of 1889. The Icons of Resistance stamp set, a set of 27 stamps of protest culture recurring symbols, is an evolution of a long history of researching and engaging with the signs and symbols of social movements. Welcome, Josh. Thanks for having me. Do you think of yourself as an artist or a designer? I find that a lot of the work that I do, the work that I, I tend to care the most about or I'm the most invested in, doesn't quite fall under, uh, comfortably fall under the rubric of being kind of fine art nor does it function in the way that design does in the world. And so um, I've, I've been trying to kind of chart uh, the boundaries of a third space, which, which I loosely call social movement culture, which is um, if, if fine art is the realm of individual expression and design is really, um, at least historically, the realm of, economy and statecraft, then movement culture is sort of a space where there's an attempt at some form of community or collective expression. And I think that the best of the things that I spend my time doing are an attempt at trying to sort of navigate this space and and draw on and are on the shoulders of a tradition of, of other people doing similar things. What are the other people doing similar things? Like, who are you drawing from in the work that you're doing? Uh, I mean, I, I guess I, I'm in the sort of final stages of putting um, putting a, a, another book uh, to to press, and it is a series of discussions with 
a, a broad range of people from someone like Emery Douglas, who was the creator of most of the imagery and the visual imagination of the Black Panther Party and did the layout and design for the Black Panther newspaper starting in the late 1960s and going into the 1980s to someone like Abram Finkelstein, who was part of the Silence Equals Death project, which then um, fractured and, and parts of it came back together as Grand Fury, which was the kind of unofficial art and design wing of the ACT UP movement in support of uh, people with AIDS and, you know, ending the the crisis, the AIDS crisis in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, a woman named Judy Seidman, who was part of the Medu Arts Ensemble in the late 1970s, early 1980s in Botswana, over the border of South Africa, who were doing all different forms of cultural work as part of the anti-apartheid movement to end uh, institutionalized racism um, and structural racism within South Africa. So talking to all these people about what they did and how they did it and how none of their work in a way comfortably fits into discreetly any of the sort of defined spaces of art or design, but really is a, a different form. One of the things that Abram said in these conversations, which I think is really powerful, is that he never felt like he or the group that he was working with, they might have designed the Silence Equals Death poster, which is sort of this famous 1987 political poster and which evolved into a graphic that got used not just on posters, but buttons and t-shirts and banners and and, and thousands of other things that is a large black field and in white text it says silence equals death and then at the top it has a pink triangle which is a reference to the pink triangles that gay men were forced to wear in the concentration camps in Germany um, in the, during World War II. Um, he said we might have designed that image but it was the community that actually authored it that it wasn't until it was being used in the world that it took on its meaning and became what it was. And I think that that um, speaks very directly to what one of these insights I think is really important is I feel like the work that so much of the work that I do really only becomes itself when it's out in the world and people are using it, whether that's doing graphic work for a specific organization that is using it in a campaign or whether that's creating imagery that is getting downloaded for free by people all over the world, and then they're creating new things with it, or they're iterating it, changing it, making it to something new. Um, I'm less interested in authorship and more interested in the sort of distribution aspects of visual culture. It's interesting that, uh, you know, when you're talking about this third place, I'm immediately thinking of Brooklyn itself as an organization and a culture because Boken kind of sits between the library world, academia, the art world, the design world. And it's kind of hard to explain how it functions within all those worlds. Um, and your work kind of fits into Bookland's culture. And again, you're talking about these icons, which immediately makes me think of this icons of resistance sort of book you did, which is really a rumper stamp kit, um, which is kind of a physical manifestation of what you just spoke about. And I'm wondering if you can, you know, kind of uh, talk a little bit more about how within your own work, 
you kind of manifest books or artworks that kind of reflect these larger political and institutional um, kind of concepts that you grapple with. Part of what makes this this sort of third space, this movement culture meaningful to me is that we live in a, a broader context in which language is used very freely uh, and, and loosely. And I think that for the most part, that's fine. But it, what, when it comes to the tools and mechanisms and engines that drive social transformation, the more specific we can be, the better, because the more sharp our tools are for actually creating those transformations. And there's this diffuse, almost accepted logic at this point, which is interesting because this wasn't necessarily true 20 years ago, but um, where, where people walk around with this, this kind of mantra like, you know, art is powerful, it can change the world. Uh, and, and I actually think that like, as a, that's a fine aphorism or something, but it's, it's not only is it kind of useless, it's, it's arguably gets in the way of us actually figuring out how we change the world. Because in reality, art doesn't change the world, certainly not by itself. And so I actually want to hone articulations that rather than obscure the levers that we can use to transform things makes them more visible. And part of that is that art historically has been most powerful in the drive for social transformation or social justice when they are embedded in larger strategies, not when they're out on their own. That like me painting something about my feelings about torture is going to be a lot less useful for ending torture than me creating work in the context of a campaign that is developed a specific set of tactics and strategies towards figuring out what targets are necessary to hit in order to push on the levers of power to make torture untenable. And when we just flatten all this stuff out to art is powerful, then that becomes invisible. And so I actually want to figure out ways to make those, those levers more visible, not harder to see. And so part of that is for me is is both like it's kind of a geeky interest but also i think it's meaningful to say that like a lot of contemporary artists and even a lot of designers are sort of dismissive of the icons and symbols that have been used now for 200 to 300 years by a lot of movements raised fists and red wedges and flags and all of these things um that they're generic they're rote they they don't carry um enough uh sort of complexity in them. And I think that all those things can on some level be true. And at the same time, they're still actively being used by millions of people who are organizing all over the world. Um, so no matter what your academic thesis is about whether that's useful or not, um, I don't think that like Maoist farmers in India give a shit. Um, they're going to raise their fists when it actually articulates how they're feeling and because it communicates to other organized militant workers in other parts of the world that they're on the same page. I'm really interested in how do, how do we get people to sort of start to think about these signs and symbols as a language, because I think that's what it is. 
And it seems like the best way to do that is to get people to use it as a language, to actually um, speak and write in it. And so rather than writing a manifesto, actually creating a set of these signs and symbols that are easy to use so that people can play with them seems like a great point of entry to actually encourage the exploration of these ideas rather than telling people what they are. Uh, with that in mind, can you describe the ex- the icons of resistant stamp set and, and how that functions within your, you know, your goal to, you know, create movement culture that activates actual political action? Sure. I mean, the, the stamp set, unfortunately, in terms of economy of scale, the production of 27 unique stamps is not a particularly cheap endeavor. And so in a way, the Icons of Resistance stamp set is a sort of proof of concept more than a kind of end in and of itself. And so it, it's a it's a um, archivally produced box that houses 27 two-inch by two-inch stamps, each of them faced with uh, a different icon that's part of this kind of language or lexicon of, of signs and symbols that have developed basically since the advent of capitalism um, by people who are opposing capitalism, imperialism, misogyny, homophobia, um, etc. And um, and that each one represents, in a way, a letter form. So there's 27, which is roughly comparable to, say, the 26 letters in the Roman alphabet. And um, and then these things, when you... So, for instance, like one of the symbols is a, is a Venus symbol, the, the sort of women's symbol. And you can stamp that once, and that's generally understood as a representation of womanness, which of course is contested all the time and trying to um, simplify that. But then you, you, you stamp that again next to it, and then you have what at least throughout the 1970s and 80s and into the 90s was the symbol for lesbianism. You have two women symbols intersecting. So these these stamps, their, their meaning modif- modifies as they are put in relationship to each other into other things that you could draw on the same page. And so in a way, it really is about using them as letter forms to create words and phrases and sentences, um, which then become part of larger paragraphs, which is maybe, you know, a political poster, um, which then takes these elements and mixes in all kinds of other things as well. And, and so the idea with these boxes is to sort of create this tool set, then to have a, a short little monograph, a, a printed kind of zine that explains a brief sort of two to three paragraph etymology of each of the symbols, and then some examples of how they can and have historically been mixed and matched and, and made to make new meaning, and then a set of uh, a, a couple of stamp pads so that it's like plug and play. You just open up the box and then you can start using it. Josh, I'm interested in authorship, which you mentioned earlier. When symbols are kind of put into the public dialogue, do they, should they become openly accessible um, to be used by everyone else, you know, as, as a new form of language? There's sort of two ways to 
two ways to look at that or two questions in that. There's there's a question of what will happen, and then there's a question of like the ethics of what will happen. Um, I think we've reached the point socially in terms of the distribution of visual imagery in our culture through social media and other forms that there's no question that once something is available or visible to the public, it will you no longer can control it. Like it's a moot point to to say whether this is or isn't going to happen. Then the question becomes, should it happen? I think that the, the history of social movements shows us that movements get stronger the more that these things are, um, the more the symbols are are open for people to evolve and change and build on. And, and it's um, often the case that uh, the the origins of the symbol will be in one movement, but will become more powerfully used in another. Um, that there's a, always a process of iteration, detournment, evolution. So, I mean, even just in that silence equals death example, you know, the a symbol that the Nazis were using as a mark of, of shame got turned literally upside down on the poster and then conceptually upside down as a, as a mark of potential political solidarity. And we see this, you know, the way that the raised fist has circulated through so many different movements and gets embedded in so many different ways. Like second wave feminism takes the fist and puts it in the middle of that Venus symbol, um, which then sort of takes on this meaning of a kind of like militant or socialist feminism, as opposed to, I suppose, a more kind of lifestyle feminism or something. Um there's there there's so many examples of the iconography, you know, jumping continents, jumping um, written languages. So a, a, an icon will be developed in a you know Russian-speaking world and then be popularized in the Dutch-speaking world. There's a there's a sort of really rich and interesting tradition of of signs and symbols and, and broadly tactics being developed in one movement and then used to different or sometimes even better effect than another. From my perspective, these things are and should be kind of open source in the sense that they are to be repurposed and reused. Um, I, I think that the at the end of the day, how those things get repurposed and reused is about power. Who has the most power to control the meaning of an image? I don't think one gains power by controlling distribution i think one gains power by organizing the more people you have and the more organized they are the more power you have yeah it's it's interesting it immediately makes me think of the trumpist movement's attempt to take over the fist the power fist you know as a, a sign yep. of anti-federal government and instead it just i believe like diminishes like the integrity of their own fascist position. Like it's no matter how much Matt Gantz gives the power fist, he's always going to look like an asshole when he does it. <laughs> no matter how much Trump gives the power fist, it's just like this pathetic attempt to, to, to garner the power of the icon. Um, but it's interesting. It's kind of failing um, in the same way. I think that the the roots of the fist are very much from the left, but it it has drifted within popular culture to be this sort of loose symbol of resistance. When you watch these fantasy military films, 
where like the U.S. Marines or the Army or whatever are always they're always painted as the underdog. Yet they're like wearing kafias, right? Um, not because they're in it's, it has no association with Palestine. It's just that like it's showing that they're rebellious. You know, they're they're the bedraggled um, kind of guerrillas who are fighting the good fight. And I think that these things will fail as long as we maintain controlling interest in these symbols, which means that we need to keep using them and evolving them and iterating them and putting them in new contexts and building on them. Otherwise, they sort of die on the vine. I was recently reading about the black cat, um, which I believe is in the Icons of Resistance. Yes. Stamp that. The, the sabotage cat. Yes, from the IWW and kind of reading through how it was used by so many other political movements. And interesting, you know, that it came from a subversion from kind of the earlier reading of the black cat as being associated with evil or witches, that reclamation of the silence equals death, pink triangle. Yeah, I mean, it, it, Avram show like he he shows uh, a whole set of uh, he often shows a whole set of kind of iterations of the silence equals death moniker and, and image and one of them that he often shows is there's a was the use by like one of these focus on the family type organizations in the 90s of um silence equals death as an anti-abortion slogan so there was an attempt to even co-opt that within a right context um, but I think the fact that it didn't happen very often shows that it, on, on a certain level, it failed. But I, yeah, like, I mean, the black hat is great because it, I mean, I think it loosely now tends to, it, like it tracks to this idea of the wildcat. So like a strike that's not um, authored by the union, which speaks to sort of an uncontrollability, which goes back to like the feminist reading of the black cat as it's sort of being this witchy symbol and that women are uncontrollable and therefore like bad luck um and then interestingly like the one of the other really powerful icons of, in the u.s and internationally the last you know the second half of the 20th century was the black panther which is a cat but the etymology of them uh is completely different yet they sort of converge josh you're you're you've been involved with just seeds and I think we could call you a co-founder. I just wanted to hear you talk about, you know, your place within these, uh, what now I think we could call movement organizations or movement support or movement service organizations. You know, I, I grew up in punk rock. So I was a little punk rock kid in Massachusetts in the late 1980s and was making flyers for shows and designing record covers for friends and t-shirts for friends bands to go on tour and tattoos and like all of the kind of applied art that comes with a counterculture or a subculture. I mean, punk really for me was a political, the beginning of a long political education. You know, there were all these well-known punk bands that were singing about political issues, whether it be someone like the clash or, sort of sub-sub-genre punk hardcore bands that were interested in certain issues, whether it be animal rights or prisons or things like that. And 
kind of got interested in those issues and then started to realize that like there was this whole world of organizations that were organizing around those issues and they weren't just singing about them. They were actually trying to sort of develop strategies to change those things beyond just raising consciousness. And, and then I kind of realized quickly that the skill set that I had developed making all of this ephemera around punk was kind of the exact same skill set necessary for the making of placards for demonstrations or t-shirts for a rally, um, graphics that would go on flyers to get people to come to a meeting. And so I quickly started working with organizations to, to use my skill sets in that way. Yet the it's, I don't think it's unfair to say that the nineties in particular was a strange period of like arid desert for the intersection of culture and political movements. There just was not a lot of robust, interesting and active experimentation going on in the intersection of these spaces. You would go to a rally and usually what you would get is like Trotsky is handing you you know, eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper that had basically the equivalent of a Bible typed on them and eight point type, um, which of course no one is ever going to read. Um, there was like not beautiful posters. There just was not a, um, a culture of that. So I found myself kind of both researching the history of the things I was interested in. So I was like, well, how come posters look like this in Cuba, but they don't look like that here. Um, and then also, with the organizations that I was working with, trying to convince them that they should use culture more and to better effect. Um, and oftentimes they were willing to do that. They would let me make t-shirts for them. They just didn't want to pay for it. There was no budget for these things. So um, it was kind of in this context that I first started developing Just Seeds and um, first started to try to figure out how to lay some groundwork to kind of create spaces for cultural producers and movement people to intersect more. In a way, I think that trying to get these kind of intersections of art and culture into other institutions um, becomes an extension of this kind of work. And so working with Bookland is a natural process because you have a relationship with all of these educational institutions what better place to start to really try to stir up this, these ideas about the role that culture can play other than getting to younger people who are interested in these ideas, whether they're on the political end, budding young organizers, or whether they're on the art and design end and they're at a design school or in an art program. Yeah, I, I'm, you know, we are even doing programs with young children in community service organizations like Mixteca. And, um, you know, then there's the, the zine program in the parks and the schools. And you're seeing really young children engage with these social and even political cultures that are around them because cats are cool and fists are cool and they're living in a world where they see these symbols. And I think young children have an intuitive understanding of iconic language because they kind of live in an iconic world. I also think it fits perfectly within social media, which demands a much more simple, iconic graphic presence to um, 
you know, get your message across on that Instagram feed or TikTok or whatever social media you're using. What was your first artist book? Was this, um, have you always been making artist books or is making artist books newer to your art practice? I mean, I guess it depends on how you define an artist book, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. I was always making, I've always made zines. Right. And so is that an artist book? I don't know. Um, I mean, not even sure that the things that I'm making, I would define as artist books other than it's a way to codify them enough that someone will buy them. (laughs) Um, (laughs) it, It doesn't, like, I don't see myself as working in a specific artist book tradition. I don't really know almost anything about artist books as a capital A, capital B kind of form. I am and have always been in love with like the codex, like the book as an object. It's it's a, like incredibly probably the most durable form of the distribution of information. So it seems like it only makes sense to make books. And then those can be made in millions of different ways. Sometimes it's a photocopy and sometimes it's a mass produced book trade object. And sometimes it's a handmade, um, each one unique kind of thing. It really depends on what the goal of the communication is. And I I think that that drives me more than any of the kind of formal traditions of these things. I also want to go back to something you said about how people have commented that a strong theme in your work is the historical. So I kind of was curious about how do you look at history to inspire your work and how do you how do you research? Like what's your research method? I mean, contrary to the best uh, efforts of my high school teachers and some um undergraduate professors uh i still am interested in history um because man was that shit dull uh when i was a kid but at some point i realized that like we live in a social context that is so intensely kind of obsessed with the present that like that the, the the in order to maintain the status quo there's this need to kind of project this idea that things are the way they are because they've always been that way and if they've always been that way they will continue to always be that way and thus we're sort of stuck in this holding pattern in which if nothing has ever been different it can't ever be different again so we just are where we are and we'll always be where we are um but the thing that is so awesome about history it is this is like the most simplest of tools to completely upend that reality to say wait a second actually we can just look back five minutes or five weeks or five years or five decades or five centuries and see that things have always been different (laughs) they're changing all the time because we can look back and say wait a second that's not that doesn't look anything like what it looks like now and then you can say well if that's true then it doesn't have to look this way tomorrow it like opens up an infinite number of possibilities for ways that we can change things. And so I think that that at its core is why I'm interested in history is because it's a profoundly simple tool for upending the status quo. That like at the end of the day, it's all you need to be able to prove to anyone that like things don't have to be the way they are. In fact, they, they just in the span of me speaking, they're no longer the way they are. <laughs> they're already something else. 
Um, and that's fucking great. Uh, it frees us to be able to imagine it being any way we want. And then history helps us with that too, because then we can look and say, well, there are patterns. Things tend to develop in these certain ways. There are outliers to those patterns, but, you know, and so maybe if we follow one of these paths, then it increases the chances that we can make the change that we want to, we want to see happen. And then like, we can tinker with that along the way because of course things can change. So we learn and we change and we learn and we correct and, and recorrect and evolve and build. And the ideological underpinning of all of that is history. And so I, I feel like everyone is deploying history. It's just that sometimes it's being invisibilized. And I like to put it front and center. I mean, in a way, everyone's choosing the history that they want to justify what they're doing. And I think that the more public we are about that, then the more contested it can be. And then the more that we can evolve and grow along the way. Yeah, it seems like the Celebrate People's History uh, print and poster project is kind of a direct manifestation of what you just described. So I, I think it's interesting how... Uh, where it seems one of your talents is in having historical and intellectual constructs, but being able to create physical manifestations, um, usually ephemera and printed material that really directly reflect, you know, those concerns. And I, I think that's really kind of in of itself shows a lot of integrity whether you're an artist or a designer, whether you're self-taught or whether you're taught through your familial history uh, is kind of immaterial to the fact that there's this great conceptual integrity to, to your physical practice of, I'll say, movement culture making. I mean, I think that this is where formal qualities come back in is, is to say, like, if our goal is to create a broader, more engaged community or society that is better informed and better able to sort of understand where it comes from so that it can charter a better path forward. Do we do that by putting up monuments to the histories that have not been celebrated? Do we do that by writing alternative textbooks? Or is the form of the monument and the form of the textbook in some ways part of the problem? And that maybe we need other forms that are more ephemeral, that are more small, for lack of a better word, more distributable, more in like indiv like open for individual engagement and production, um, so that like we're not just saying that 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 we we haven't learned all of the quote unquote right history. But in fact, like maybe there's something wrong with historiography more broadly, um, and that history is something that we're we're actually participating in by doing things in the world. So why shouldn't we be participating in telling the story of that doing? And so that's where like not casting a bronze monument, but m printing thousands and thousands and thousands of eleven by seventeen sheets of paper. Um, as a kind of alternative way of distributing that history or with the Open City Project in Syracuse, occupying a storefront for a couple weeks and having, opening it up 
for like public printing and a series of conversations and discussions with different people who are organizing in the community, having a radio station in there that was, you know, distributing those conversations over the internet that like, there's so many different ways that we can tell these histories, be part of creating these histories. Why just default to the forms that we inherit from who knows where, um, and instead just like have our goal drive the formal quality rather than having the formal quality drive what we're doing. I also wanted to um, ask you and Jan to kind of have a conversation about all the projects that you're working on right now at Bookland. Yeah, I'd love to talk about, firstly, the Paper Politics Exhibition which is the collection from the traveling exhibition of handmade prints from over 200 artists from 2005 to 2010, as well as the God Bless Graffiti Coalition box set, which is a collection of almost 90 prints. Um, Do you want to talk about, or could you talk about those collections of print ephemera, which now I'm seeing as like tiny monuments and yeah, those projects and what that collection kind of means to you and and that experience of putting them together i mean i guess if if i'm like a history person and a distribution person i'm also an aggregator person maybe it's it's part of it that like inner punk from high school like is just like kind of a maximalist and it's like if i'm interested in how people are using the print the distributable form of print to to talk about politics. Why pull together 10 examples when you can pull together 300? (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's like as a social scientist, you know, the bigger the sample size, the more we can learn from it. Uh, I mean, in a way, like both, both paper politics and God Bless Graffiti Coalition are these aggregator projects. They're um, the making of a framework that then can um, sort of shepherd or build a kind of arsenal of examples of different things and then that are within their their field. So whether for paper politics, it's just sort of seeing how, seeing the multiplicity of forms of printed resistance that were being developed to to the bush presidencies um you know starting uh in 2000 and going you know to 2008 and and then the the wars in iraq and afghanistan um and then with god bless graffiti coalition seeing the all the forms that particular youth but all kinds of people were using to sort of use the street as a, a, a space, a whiteboard in a way for expression that was outside of the norms of the forms that could be um, otherwise developed or found in society, like seeing graffiti in a way as, um, as sort of turning, turning the, the, our shared space, largely our shared urban space into a giant, newspaper in a way of, of, of people's thoughts and feelings and ideas. Um, 
and that that's profoundly criminalized in our society because private property is more important than everything else. And so, therefore, if you don't actually own a newspaper and can't express yourself that way, um, you're not allowed, certainly not allowed to put it on someone else's property. There's just sort of like an endless closing down of opportunities for people who are already marginalized to be able to express themselves in any way that anyone else would be able to see it or hear it or recognize it. Um, but I digress. Uh, the, the, these were both projects in which there was the aggregation of hundreds of people who were doing these things and trying to kind of create a convening in a way in which those people would recognize and see each other and therefore could spin off and build communities amongst themselves. But that also by looking at all this material in one place and in one time, um, with Paper Politics, a series of almost a dozen exhibitions of these like hundreds of works of printed kind of protest, to start to think about the ways and the roles that print plays in our kind of political dialogue and lives. Um, or with God Bless Graffiti, this idea of like creating a, there are all these organized anti-graffiti entities. So what would it look like to have kind of like a pro-graffiti um kind of organizational body and that um if if private property is the engine that's driving the anti-graffiti thing in our society like what is the thing that has like more power or more capital than private property arguably the only thing maybe is god and therefore like to create this entity and call it god blesses graffiti right the god bless graffiti coalition it's like on high we're saying graffiti is awesome um <laughs> Uh, you know, there's no higher authority that you can go to to say graffiti is bad because God says it's cool. And so, mm -hmm. sorry, you're just out of luck. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and, and then like just sending out an open message, like anyone that's making stickers or, you know, street art or graffiti who wants to send us stuff, we'll aggregate it and redistribute it into the world. Um, which we did in a number of different ways. And then that box is sort of the, the remnants of, of that project and some of the documentation of it and the way that we organized that. Me and my friend Daniel Tucker did that project in Chicago in the early 2000s. In a way, like they're both like these interesting projects that hinge, uh, they're a little bit out of the center of all the other things that we've been talking about that I tend to be, spend my time on, but they're at the same time like kind of like the encyclopedia project or even the people's history poster project. They're about bringing together like lots and lots of people and, and very consciously not privileging some of those people over others, but saying that we're all making this stuff and it's all, you know, we're not going to say some of this stuff is more important than other aspects of this stuff. What if we just all put it together and see what happens? So Josh, speaking of aggregates, um, we have another um, collection at Brooklyn, the print agit prop series, which aggregates your work. Um, and I wanted to be sure to mention one of the pieces in, in one of those works. That's my favorite, um, that I always chuckle about, um, which is the print agit prop tired of capitalism. Uh, within it, there is a placard, um, of labor creates all wealth. Um, which is from 2006 in Troy, New York, when you formed a fictitious union, the United Victorian Workers, um, <laughs> to march around um, during the Victorian stroll 
um, during Christmas time. Um, and then I think the part that I love the most that I really want you to, to talk about is when the police were sent in their 100 year old police costumes. Um, yeah, I'm just going to give it to you because I, I love to hear the story. Yeah. I, in 2005, I moved to Troy, New York from Chicago and with my, my then partner, Dara Greenwald and, um, Troy is this very, I mean, it's changed actually a lot in, in the last 20 years, but, um, it, it was, uh, really like touted it's itself as a sort of, um, a town kind of stuck in time in a way of the sort of, uh, Victorian era, these old architecture, um, and, uh, the, there was a kind of like selling of the town of the city on this, these, this sort of architectural forms. Um, interestingly, of course, it's, it's only the architecture of the rich that gets celebrated and then everything else gets torn down and rebuilt. And there was a version of that that was happening every year around Christmas time where there would be this thing called the Victorian stroll, which was this idea, this gimmick by the chamber of commerce to get people from the surrounding area to come to downtown Troy to shop for the holidays. So it was kind of a boosterist kind of program. And then a lot like the chamber of commerce and people who were part of the city government would all dress up in kind of Victorian finery and stroll around. So, um, there's like very fancy outfits and, um, with women would have parasols and, but of course it was only the, the outfits of the, the wealthy, the, the factory owners that would march around. But simultaneously, while Troy is, um, the home of, of these Victorian era buildings, it also is the home of child labor in the United States. And so, you know, all of the mills, um, I mean, Troy was called the Collar City because it's where collars were made for button-up shirts. Because it used to be that um, people could generally would own one shirt, but would be able to, the collars were replaceable. You would button your collar on because it's the collar that would get dirty. And then you would wash or throw that away and replace that, but you would keep the shirt because you couldn't afford to have one shirt. And so there was this industry making these collars, almost all child labor. Um, Troy's also the history of, you know, Troy's history is the first women's labor union came out of Troy. There's just a really rich, powerful labor history that's not celebrated at all. And so we decided that we would kind of make visible the ideology of the Victorian stroll by creating a union, the United Victorian Workers, and parade around the town dressed as the working class of the Victorian era. Um, and we made newspapers and buttons. Um, we salted the, the downtown area with people who had memorized speeches from Troy labor uh, organizers from the period, and they would get up in soapbox. Um, and it was fascinating because in general, people seemed to think it was pretty cool. The only people who were really upset by it were the Chamber of Commerce. And so we sort of surreptitiously caught on video the head of the Chamber of Commerce trying to convince the police to disperse us 
Um, the police <laughs> being the most organized element of the city and one of the you know most powerful unions they actually thought it was pretty rad so they're like what are you talking about this is cool (laughs) um and and so they're all dressed as like inscrutably as like victorian era but british like bobbies with these like (laughs) tall caps and which doesn't historically really make a lot of sense but anyways um so they fake waded into us with batons and fake beat us out of the city center, <laughs> um, which was kind of wonderful because we kind of, they wanted to project the grandeur of the ruling class and we forced them to project the reality of the ruling class, which is using the police to beat everyone else to a pulp. Um, and so it kind of like forced them to actually embody the thing that they were dressing up as, um, and was a kind of wonderful serendipity that we could have never planned for. Uh, the, the interesting side effect from that was of course, that then all these unions wanted us to reenact that every year, (laughs) 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 which we're like, no, 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 you can do it if you want. (laughs) We kind of did our bit. Um, (laughs) But I, I feel like that project, <laughs> one of the things that was so great about that was it did, it really illustrated how like you can take an issue that no one really wants to face or deal with in the contemporary moment and shift it into a different time period. And then it becomes in some ways like more interesting, more palatable, more whatever. But in that alternative space, you can still sort of force a reckoning with po- how power actually functions. And kind of make that visible. Because I feel like if, if the police were just beating people on strike, then people would walk away and be like, oh, I don't want to have anything to do with that. I don't know. You know, like, I'm not a protester. I'm not part of that union. Like, I don't want to. But because it was all within this sort of charade of this Victorian stroll, it became this object of interest. But, but you also just described an essential strategy of art, right? The... N of organizing, which is the Trojan horse. You know, you you take a contemporary event, you you cloak it in some other clothes, and you present the exact same issues, and people engage with them. I mean, it's it's kind of the basis for the the novel, the basis for much of cinema, the basis for lots of painting, and and. And you know what you were doing was basically performance art. Um, you know the 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 period piece is an essential strategy of of cultural production. I think that one of the things that made this feel more powerful on the ground is that there was no there was no reveal that it was art. We were not organizing it as artists, nor was the goal to sort of recuperate it as art. And so I don't know if that, I mean, maybe it doesn't matter on some level, but it it seems like it escaped the kind of capture that so much of the work that you're describing tends to fall into where people are like, oh, this is like a genre. I know how to understand this. I know what it is. Um, Maybe part of that is because so much of the culture that's produced the audience is so stratified and rarefied and kind of chopped up and predefined before the thing's even made. 
If it's a painting, then it's only going to be seen by people who go into galleries. And if it's a film that like has subtitles or is sort of serious in some way, it's only going to be seen by people who are like film goers. And if it's a novel, then it's, you know, it's only going to be read by people who read like novels of gravity. And that this broke into like a popular event in an unexpected way to a broad audience that like didn't know that they were necessarily seeing art, didn't, didn't interpret it that way, didn't really maybe even know how to interpret it other than it was this weird quirky thing that made the whole thing more interesting. I think that that's a big challenge that any person making anything now has, which is like, how do you how do you circumscribe the predefined audience that you're given? That could be a whole other conversation. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Josh, that was really great. Thank you so much for joining us and um, providing um, your perspective and just all the sharing all the wonderful projects that you've been doing. Yes, thank you. Um, I feel so grateful to have been able to ask you. Um, more questions about your work and um, yeah, can't, can't wait to talk to you again in the future. I feel so grateful to be able to work with you all and to have worked with Bookland for so long and for you to have the patience with my peripatetic practice. (laughs) Our pleasure. Thanks, Josh. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Bookland Calling. Check out the show notes for ways to connect with Josh McPhee. If you're a librarian or curator at an educational institute and you're interested in collecting Josh's work or others like it, you can email us at hello at bookland.org or check out our entire collection at bookland.org. This podcast was made possible in part by funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs and in partnership with the City Council and from individual donors to Bookland Inc. You can support this podcast by making a donation at bookland.org slash donate.